Welcome to the Calvary Limerick Podcast, the teaching ministry of Pastor David Cowper. We're a church that seeks to live together before the face of God. We hope today's message blesses you. I'm about two steps behind in my preparing of notes this week because I only started it yesterday because <laughs> of Australia. So bear with me. Thanks, Anne. Bear with me a little bit. So I've been watching a TV show called The Good Place recently, and it's worth checking out and it's on Netflix. The premise of the show is that there is an afterlife, and in the afterlife there's a good place and a bad place. And the main character, Eleanor, has gotten into the good place, but she very quickly realises that there's been a mistake made and that she should have been sent to the bad place. In the first or second episode, there's a welcome party to the neighborhood, the good place neighborhood, for all the new inhabitants. And Eleanor comes face to face with some of her biggest temptations from Earth, including drinking too much alcohol, stealing shrimp and putting it in her pockets, and being generally a very mean person to everyone she meets. She's a little like Oscar Wilde, who once said, the only thing I cannot resist is temptation. The next morning, the people of the good place wake up and there's giant shrimp flying in the sky and they're all wearing weird clothes and there's rubbish raining out of the sky. And Eleanor realizes it's because of her and the fact that she wasn't able to be a good person the night before. They say you're assured of two things in life, death and taxes, but I think we could safely add temptation to that list. We all have things that tempt us, things that we want to have but shouldn't have or shouldn't have at that time or in that way. And today we're going to look at the temptation of Jesus and how he is our example of how to resist temptation, but also how his temptations were unique to him. As we've journeyed through Matthew's gospel, and we're still only really at the start, we've seen Matthew presenting Jesus to us as King, the Son of God, the promised Messiah. But in a sense, that's only half the story. At the very beginning, we were looking at the other half of the story, and it's important we don't forget it. Yes, Jesus is king. Yes, he's the son of God. Yes, he is God. He is majesty, but he's also human. And so Matthew started his account of Jesus's life with a genealogy, reminding us of the humanity of Christ. And here we'll see another reminder of the humanity of Christ. And while we remember that Jesus is fully human, we will also be struck at how Jesus is also fully God as we read through his life. And the theology word for this union of Jesus as fully human and fully God is the hypostatic union. So if you ever come across that in anything you're reading and they don't explain it, that's what it is. Fancy word to say Jesus is fully God and fully man. So we're going to read the first 11 verses of Matthew chapter 4 today. But just before we do that, I'm going to pray. God, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for how it faithfully records the history and the drama of redemption, Lord, and for what you've done for us. Thank you for Jesus' life and for how we can learn about him, learn about salvation, learn about what he's done for us, but also we can learn how to live every day from his example. And Lord, I pray that as we read through this portion of scripture, that you would be speaking to us, you would be helping us to recognize temptations in our own life, and how to overcome them using Jesus' example. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it says, 
Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only will you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. As we start into this passage, which is going to take a little explaining and a bit of going deep into some things, I want to start off by making the main points clear so we don't lose the fruit trees from the forest of the beauty of God's word and how he orchestrates things. So to say right off, Jesus is the hero of the story. That's true for this passage, for every passage in the Bible, and for every day of our lives as well. Jesus is the hero. And the second main point is that because we have a hero such as Jesus, who faced temptation and overcame it in the way we're going to see here, we too can overcome temptation, not in our strength or our own power, but by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, who is at work in all of us. So as we read the story of Jesus battling the devil in temptation, I want you to have a verse that's directed to us, to Christians, in mind as well. It's a little long, so we'll repeat it a couple of times throughout today, because as we look to apply what we learn from who Jesus is and what he does in this passage today, this verse will be key. And it's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, which says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Okay, so let's look at what the Bible is saying. In verse 1, we're told that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is important to notice. Remember before we were saying that the wilderness is the place that God never intended to exist. It's a result of sin. It's the opposite of the Garden of Eden. It's a place that people have not and cannot express their creative control, stewardship or dominion over. Yet the Spirit leads Jesus there. A lot of us Christians in the Western world have made God into our own image. We have downgraded him from being an all-powerful being who is in control of and guiding our entire lives to something we are more comfortable with. We believe mad things like God only wants us to be happy. God won't ever allow bad things to happen to us. God will never challenge us and things like that. God's goal for your life is Christ-likeness. His goal for your life is holiness. Sometimes getting us to that goal means testing our faith. Sometimes that testing is with fire. It can be painful and it can suck and we wish it wouldn't happen, but God allows it. He doesn't cause it, but he allows it because the end result is Christ-likeness in us 
if we respond to him in the right way. And that word, to be tempted by the devil, can be translated test as well. Because the Bible tells us God never tempts anyone, but he does test us. So the Spirit led Jesus, and he led Jesus to something that wasn't easy, but which was ultimately for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Jesus' temptation was necessary for our salvation. And we'll come back to that in a bit. But I want us to notice that the Holy Spirit led Jesus and Jesus went. So it sets a great example for those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ. He allowed the Spirit to guide him. And if our Lord and Saviour did it, how much more should we be guided by the Holy Spirit and take our cues from him? That's an essential part of being and growing as a Christian, listening for and to the voice of God's Holy Spirit as he guides us through life. But Jesus wasn't tested for the same reason we are. God didn't need to know something about Jesus or the depth of his faith as he might when we're tested or we face temptation. Whereas Warren Wearsby notes, Jesus was tempted so that every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth might know that Jesus Christ is conqueror. So back to the necessity of Jesus' temptation for our salvation. What I don't mean by that is that Jesus being tempted by the devil is what saves us from sin. What I do mean is, if you remember back to Jesus' conversation with John the Baptist, he said that he was being baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus' overcoming temptation is another step on the path to fulfilling all righteousness. Because as we said last time, it was not just Jesus' death that saved us from sin, but his life too. He lived a perfect life that we could not live. And he fulfilled the law, or he fulfilled all righteousness. And my study Bible says, on this passage, the temptations are a diabolical attempt to subvert God's plan for human redemption by causing Jesus to fall into sin and disobedience and thus disqualifying him as the sinless saviour. So for Satan, there was a real plot here to void Jesus' ability to be our saviour. And that makes Jesus' faithfulness to who he is, who he is called to be by the Father, a very important thing for us. And notice the timing of Jesus' temptation. We've just been looking at his baptism last time we were together. That would have been a very high point for Jesus. The Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, and the voice of the Father was heard. And then after that high point comes this temptation. That's why a lot of people will warn those getting baptized to be aware that there will probably be a time of extra temptation afterwards. It was true for Jesus, and Satan is very unoriginal. He isn't very creative, so he does the same things over and over again. So he tempts Christians after their baptisms in the same way as he tempted Jesus after his baptism. And a guy called Green said, this sorts out the emotional highs from the reality of spiritual conquest and growth. We are not meant to live on spiritual highs. We are meant to live on the bread that comes from God alone, even if that bread is found in the desert. Verse 2 tells us that Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and that afterwards he was hungry. Last year when I was in CCBC, there was a girl called Jen who was preparing to go out to Calvary Chapel Bible Institute in New Zealand as an intern. And she'd been wondering and praying about how to prepare to enter the service of the Lord in such a way. 
And she came to the conclusion that she should do what Jesus did before he went into ministry, and she should fast for 40 days and 40 nights. She also worked in the kitchen in the Bible college, an eight-hour shift most of those days while she was fasting. And miracle by miracle, she got to 38 days before her health meant that she had to eat something. I think you'd need God's strength and sustaining if you were to attempt fasting for that long. And it isn't something you should just undertake on a whim. But what I really like about this verse is the obviousness of it. Matthew says, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. Of course he was hungry, can you imagine it? Some of you had dinner a couple of hours ago and you're probably already hungry again. Or maybe you'll get for another couple of, of hours and you'll want your tea. Four hours might be the max that we're able to do before we're hungry again. So Jesus isn't just hungry, he's famished. Before we moved on, we move on, sorry. You probably noticed that Jesus was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and you realize you've heard that number before in the Bible. It rained for that long in the days of Noah. The Israelites spent 40 years wandering the desert. And the number 40 in the Bible is about judgment. And Jesus had come to be judged for our sin and in our place. In verse 3, Matthew tells us the tempter came to Jesus. In verse 1, this figure has already been identified as the devil. In the Greek, as in with English, the inclusion of the word the before devil and tempter tell us that this is talking about a unique individual, not just temptation as a feeling that Jesus had, but a person, and not just a demon, but Satan himself. And although these temptations are included to show us that we can overcome temptation in the strength of the same Christ that overcame temptation here, they are also more than that. These temptations are specific to the Messiah and Jesus is being tempted as to whether he will be the Messiah that comes as a conquering king or as a suffering servant. And we're going to see him choose the path of suffering servant. Biblical scholars have often concluded that a verse in 1 John 2.16 to be exact contains the three types of temptations that Christians face. This verse says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So the three types of temptation we face are the desires of the flesh, second is the desires of the eyes, and the third is the pride of life. And as we will see as we go through these three temptations of Jesus, that each one falls into a different category. And so when Hebrews, that we heard in our opening call to worship, says that Jesus was tempted in every way we are, here it's happening symbolically, because we're tempted in three areas, and Jesus was tempted in each of those three areas as well. So let's get into them. What does Satan first say to Jesus? He says, if. This is a pattern of Satan's. He always tries to sow doubt with a question. When Satan is tempting Eve, he asks if God really said what God said. Here he comes to Jesus and he says, if you are the son of God. When Satan comes to you, he's probably going to use a similar tactic. He's going to ask you a question and the purpose of the question will be to sow doubt about God in your mind. 
If God really loves you, then why? If God is good, then how? And other such questions. Satan here is trying to tempt Jesus to use his divine powers to make his life easier. That's the temptation. Satan says, if you're the son of God, command these rocks to become bread. The temptation is twofold. First, prove you're the son of God by doing a miracle. Something that Jesus would be asked by Pharisees and other people who doubt him later in his ministry. Here's the first test. To not use his power to prove himself, but to show he is the Messiah by living the life that God called him to live and that fulfilled the purpose of his coming. That was the best way to know he's the Messiah. And then the second side of it was to use his power to sustain himself, to meet his own needs. Jesus' coming to earth was self-sacrificial, not just in his death, but in the fact that he left the splendor of heaven and lived on this earth, which is far inferior and a far inferior way to live. Satan is telling him, make it easier for yourself, Jesus, but Jesus won't give in. This first temptation can also be seen to involve the love of God and the will of God. It's about the love of God because Satan's suggestion is that God doesn't love Jesus because he led him out to this wilderness and then left him there for so long to fast. And then it's about the will of God because the mission that Jesus was on is what Satan is attacking here. Satan was trying to sway him from it. And our temptation can be about similar things, trying to get us to doubt God's goodness and love for us, which is why being, God being good and God being loving and loving us needs to be a foundational truth of our lives. We need to build our lives on that and not something else, things we should never doubt. And the other area is that we can be tempted out of the will of God for our lives. This temptation of Jesus is the one that fits into the category of the desires of the flesh. Jesus needed to eat. It was a genuine need and desire of his. Just as many of the temptations we face are genuine needs or genuine desires we have. However, if Jesus was to fill that need in that way at that time, it would have been sin. And that can so often be the case for us as well. And so how does Jesus reply to Satan? This is important because it sets a pattern for how we can reply. He says, it is written, the Bible, God's word, what God actually said, how God actually revealed himself. And that's how we combat temptation in our lives. Remember our key verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So one of the ways God provides for us to overcome temptation, one of the main ways, is the use of his word. In Psalm 119, verse 11, the psalmist writes, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Knowing and believing God's word is key to combating the wiles of Satan and overcoming temptation. And that's exactly what Jesus does. And what does Jesus say? He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Basically what Jesus is saying is that we need more than our physical needs to be met. But our spiritual needs need to be met as well. And if we were to only focus on our physical needs, to the neglect of our spiritual needs, then we would end up in sin. 
I want us to notice the first word that Jesus quotes here. He says, man shall not live. When we think about Jesus being tempted, and when somebody like me draws links to how we can be tempted and we can resist temptation because Jesus did, and he is our example, your heart might be inclined to object, but Jesus is God. Of course he didn't sin. Well, there's nothing to suggest that Jesus approached his temptation within his divine power. I said last time we were together that I'm not sure how much Jesus accessed the power that would have been available to him as God while he was on the earth. It seems that most of the time he lived in the power of the Spirit, the same way we as believers are called to live today. And that certainly seems to be true here. Jesus faced Satan here as a man, and we can know that because Satan is actually tempting him to use his divine powers to overcome his, his hunger. So if Jesus was to use his divine power to overcome his temptation, then he wouldn't have been successful. He would have given in and used his power to make his life easier, which is exactly what Satan was tempting him to do. So the first of Satan's temptations didn't work. And so Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, to the top of it, and here he tempts Jesus again. This time you will notice that Satan almost says, okay, you want to live by the word of God, eh? And so he tries to use the word of God against Jesus. This is exactly what he did with Eve. He quoted God to her, but in his quotation he twisted it. There are so many people who call themselves Christians today, but they believe in a twisted version of God's word. They heard Satan saying it was okay to do or believe or to behave in a certain way, and they will have Bible verses that back up their behavior and ideas. But when you look at more of the Bible, more of the story, you will see how those verses taken standalone don't work with the whole of God's story, with all of what God has said. And that's the case here. So the devil quotes Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12, which says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Basically Satan is saying to Jesus, you live by the Bible, okay, the Bible says that if you jump from this height, from the top of the temple, God will protect you and won't allow you to be hurt. So jump and prove the Bible right. And the temptation falls into the second of our categories from 1 John 2.16, the desires of the eyes. This is a desire of the eye because if you think about it, it would have been a crazy spectacle. Jesus is throwing himself off the edge of the temple. There would have been hundreds of people around the temple, if not thousands, or even at certain times of the year, there would have been a million people in Jerusalem. And Jesus jumps off it, and a legion of angels show up to catch him, bringing him safely to the ground. Then they would see who he is. They wouldn't doubt him and reject him. That's the temptation here. Notice what Jesus says. Again, it is written. Jesus knows the Bible too, and he correctly doesn't take a verse out of its context. He uses the Bible to understand the Bible. And when we're unsure about what the Bible says, the first and best place for us to go for understanding is to the Bible itself. Because it might just shed some light in another part of Scripture about what we're confused about. Jesus answers Satan's temptation by pointing out that although the Bible does say that God will protect his people, it also says that we should not test the Lord our God. In other words, don't go looking for trouble because God is with you. But when you find yourself in trouble, God can look after you. Jesus' reply is again from Deuteronomy, 
chapter 6, verse 16 this time. And Wearsby says, We tempt God when we put ourselves into circumstances that force him to work miracles on our behalf. So what does that mean on a practical level? One of my friends recently sent me a video in which a person is basically questioning the authority of the Bible. And one of the arguments he uses against faith and against scripture regards one of the people in the US that was responsible for one of the mass shootings that are becoming all too regular there. The mother of this guy knew that her son had mental issues and brought him to a church to have an exorcism done on him instead of bringing him to a psychiatrist or a mental hospital. So when you have a medical issue, tempting God is to do nothing and say you have faith God will heal you. Because really what you're trying to do is force God into doing a miracle on your behalf when he has made provision for your healing by medical means. There are some groups, and one that calls itself Christian that comes to mind, that refuse blood transfusions, but that's tempting God. That's what Deuteronomy and Jesus would tell us not to do. And that's what Jesus says here to Satan in this second temptation. So, Satan's second temptation didn't work. He has one more trick up his sleeve, and he brings Jesus to a high mountain. I don't know if he teleported them there, or he had a vision, or whether Jesus and Satan went on a walk, climbing buildings and mountains together, but somehow they got there. Jesus and the devil are on a high mountain, and from there, Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in all their glory. I don't know if there's any mountain that you can see all the kingdoms of the world from, so probably it was a vision. This temptation is the pride of life temptation. It's asking Jesus to take a shortcut to power, a shortcut to the goals that he and the Father has and had laid out for him. So Satan shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world, and he says, all these I'll give to you if you will fall down and worship me. But notice that Satan isn't corrected by Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, actually, Satan, you don't own the kingdoms of the world to be able to give them to me. Why is that? Well, the simple answer is because Satan owns them right now. But how? To answer that, we have to go back to Genesis. God made the world, and then he made man, and then he gave control and care of the world over to man. But then the devil came, and he tempted Adam and Eve, in these same three areas, by the way, and they gave in. They listened to the devil and they gave up everything that they had. Their innocence, their relationship with God, and also the title deed to the earth. So when the Bible says, or calls Satan, the prince of this world, like in John 14, 30, it literally means he is the prince of this world. And then if you go to the other end of the Bible, there is a scroll mentioned in Revelation chapter 5. It's brought to Jesus, and he is the only one that's found worthy to open it. And each, with each of the seven seals that he opens, different judgments fall on the earth. Revelation is a confusing book, but this scroll is most likely that deed to the earth. It's currently sealed by Satan until a man is worthy enough to open the seals and buy the earth back from him. Jesus paid the price for our sin, but he also paid the price for the earth when he died on the cross. And someday, whenever revelation happens, Jesus will make his claim and be able to open the seals and take the earth back from Satan and us back from Satan 
once and for all. But for now, Satan owns the kingdoms. And he's able to show them to Jesus and promise him that if he'll worship him, and the Greek here suggests that, G that Satan is asking Jesus to worship him just once, just one time, then Satan will give Jesus a, a shortcut to his goal, having an inheritance of the nations. Jesus is aware that following God's path, the Father's path, will mean suffering, pain and death for him. So the devil comes and offers Jesus a shortcut to the goal. No suffering, no pain, no death. But there are no shortcuts to the will of God. Satan will often try and offer us one, but there are none. We need to wait on the Lord, have faith in God, and go at his pace and not at our own speedier, often, pace. It's important to remember that God's will will be done. He has made certain promises to us that we can find throughout the Bible. These promises are sure, certain, definite promises. Not things that we merely kind of think about or hope for, but things that we can be sure are coming our way. Things we can be sure that we will have or do have in Christ. And God had made promises to Christ too. In Psalm chapter 2 and Psalm 22, the same one is recorded twice. And that's the promise that God will give Jesus an inheritance of the nations. He doesn't need Satan's offer. He has God's promise. Even if God's promise means pain and suffering and death. And we are the same. We don't need Satan's offer because we have God's promise. So what does Jesus say to Satan when Satan promises him the kingdoms of the world if Jesus will only bow down and worship him once? Again, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy, this time chapter 6, verse 13. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only will you serve. Satan has always been obsessed with being worshipped, because since his fall, his desire has been to be like God, and being like God means being worshipped like God is. But Jesus is wiser than Satan, and he makes a further reference than Satan did. Satan didn't mention to Jesus that he wanted him to serve him, but Jesus knew that what you worship, you also serve, and that we shouldn't worship and serve that which is created, but we should worship and serve the creator, God alone. Satan wasn't tempting Jesus to get the kingdoms, but by striking a deal with him. Sorry, Satan was tempting Jesus to get the kingdoms by striking a deal with him. This would be instead of Jesus striking Satan through the heart with the wood of a cross, like a vampire, because vampires are real. One of the problems we see in our world is that too many people are worshipping something that is created instead of the one who created it. With a third of Satan's temptations thwarted, Jesus says, be gone to him. And Luke records something that Matthew leaves out when he says, and when the devil had ended every possible kind of temptation, he stood off from him until a suitable season. This means that Satan hadn't finished tempting Jesus totally, but this season of temptation was over. Jesus would be tempted again when Peter told him he didn't need to die. And Jesus replied, get behind me, Satan. But here Jesus has won the victory. But this would not be the only battle. And the same is true for us. We're tempted and we can win the victory, but it doesn't mean we will never be tempted again in the same way or about the same things. Victory doesn't mean an end. It means a reprieve. And one writer said, 
One victory never guarantees freedom from further temptation. If anything, each victory we experience only makes Satan try harder. But for now, Satan slunk away, a defeated foe, and Jesus is the conqueror. He exposed Satan and his tactics for us, and he defeated Satan. Although the devil intends to thwart God's plans and purposes, the Father used his evil intention for the good purpose of strengthening Jesus in his role and showing us what the devil does. But because Jesus had victory over Satan and over temptation, we, by following his example, can overcome Satan and temptation in our own lives. Our call to worship today, which is the same passage from the last service, said, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. By Jesus going through these temptations, it has allowed him to sympathize with us. He knows what it means to be tempted. He knows how hard it is, how powerful the pull of what Satan offers is. But look what Paul, possibly Paul, whoever wrote Hebrews, goes on to say. He says that because Jesus was tempted, we can boldly and confidently approach the throne of Jesus to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's my favorite word. And I hope it's becoming one of your favorite words too, grace. And because of Jesus' temptation and how that has allowed God to know what we go through, more grace is given to us. Grace to help us overcome temptation, to stand firm in trials and tests, to be faithful to God, and to pick us up when we fall, because he knows we cannot go it alone. And so he gives grace, grace upon grace, to allow us to follow him well. Luke also records these three temptations, but he puts the second two in the opposite order to Matthew. So I want us to be aware that the Bible is true and infallible and does not contradict itself. That looks like a contradiction, but Luke changes the order, and in the way he uses his language, he doesn't say that the order that he's recording is the historical order. Matthew records the temptations in the order in which they happened. You can see from the language. Luke records them in a different order to make a different point. There's no contradiction, it's just a difference in recording. If I was to tell you three stories tonight, and then in two days' time ask you to tell me those three stories again, I bet you wouldn't tell them in the exact same order I told you them. One of them would be more important to you, would link with your own experience more, and you'd probably remember that one the best, and record it first, and then the other two. And that's what Luke does, while Matthew records them in the order they happened. So we've seen the temptation of Jesus. His temptations were specific to him. They were things that would tempt Jesus to sin and stray from the path that God the Father had outlined for him and had him on. His temptation was about what type of Messiah he would be. The one promised by God, the suffering servant? Or would he take the easy way out and become the conquering king? Just as Jesus' temptations were specific to who he is and specific to the desires that he had while he was on earth, so too will the things that you are tempted with be specific to you. What Satan tempts you with will not be the same as what Satan tempts the person sitting beside, behind, or in front of you with. And a lot of our problems as a community 
comes from misunderstanding this. We think that because we are tempted by something that no one else should do it, and we judge other people when we hear that they're doing it. Remember, we're a community that's to be characterized by the grace of God. That's our goal. So when we hear of someone else in this community doing something which we avoid because of our specific temptations, we shouldn't immediately jump to judging and condemning them, but should jump to caring for them and trying to understand and whether this thing is a sin for them or not, in love, not in judgment. As well as this, we've seen how Jesus' overcoming his temptation can inspire us to follow his example and overcome temptations in our own lives. So to finish, I'm going to read that verse for us one more time, and then we're going to pray. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for what you have shown us today, Lord. And Lord, I pray that any of my words will just fall away, Lord, and what your spirit wants us to remember will be what we remember, Lord. Lord, we pray that as we face temptation in this coming week, that you will be just there with us, Lord, that you will be making that way of escape really obvious. God, I pray that as we read scripture this week, that you will be just directing us and bringing us to things that we can store up in our hearts so that when we come to the point of temptation, we will be able to quote your word to resist the devil so that he'll flee from us, Lord. Lord, we just thank you for the example of Christ. Thank you that he didn't just die for us, Lord, but that he lived such a great life that we can see and we can imitate lord and we can have confidence in our lives because of what he's done in his lord lord we thank you for grace thank you that when we fall that you are there to pick us up and that you give us grace to stand and grace to clean ourselves off when we're down in the dirt lord or you really clean us off lord lord we thank you for who you are for your love for us and for your goodness and we pray those things would be foundational truths for us that they would just be very deeply embedded in our hearts and in our minds, God. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>